This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, January the 30th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the BC's coroner service says there were over 2,500 suspected illicit drug deaths last area network of drug users reflects on the scope of the overdose crisis. In a much, much lighter segment, the International Boat Show recently took place in Toronto. Lawrence Gunther recaps the event. And then the show wraps up with another edition of the Weekly News Quiz, where Alicia Yardley, Karen McGee, and Alex Smythe will battle it out. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. Thank you for stopping by wherever you may be. The show begins with a top story that features four subjects that are all very important. Healthcare, housing... So much more. Let's begin on the healthcare front. A new report by Public Policy Reform is blasting how Canada handles health records. Karen Rebo takes a closer look. A report released today says Canada's handling of health records is woefully out of date and is negatively affecting patient care. The nonprofit Public Policy Forum says right now patient information and referrals can be easily lost between health care providers. The report says one of the first steps required is to stop using fax machines to transmit medical information. It's calling for all Canadians to have a digital medical record that includes electronic referrals and prescriptions, and it wants the those records to be accessible to all members of a patient's care team by 2028. Karen Rebo, The Canadian Press. It kind of seems like low-hanging fruit, but it is preposterous that fax machines are still being used for almost anything in the world that we currently live in. Fax machines. Email has been commonplace for over 30 years at this point. I got my first Hotmail account in 1997. Come on now. All right, let's switch to housing. Federal Housing Minister Sean Fraser has announced that post-secondary schools can apply for low-interest loans to build housing. Nojudal Maliz has that story. To boost student housing in the country, the federal government is tweaking a pre-existing program to make universities, colleges, nonprofits, and private developers eligible for low-cost financing to build residences on and off campuses. The apartment construction loan program was topped up with an additional $15 billion this fall bringing the total funding available to $40 billion. The announcement comes as the federal government grapples with a ballooning international student program that has added strain to local housing markets. Nujud Amelie, Press, Ottawa. Okay, healthcare, housing, let's talk about childcare. Federal minister, federal... Families Minister Jenna Suds says it's up to provinces and territories to make $10 a day childcare programs work. Lisa Laporte offers up some more context. 
The minister's comments come as some child care operators in Ontario and Alberta warn they may have to withdraw from the program or be forced to close altogether if they don't get more operating funds. The federal Liberals budgeted $30 billion over five years to phase in the child care program, aiming to create thousands of spaces with a $10 a day fee by 2026. Finance Minister Christia Freeland says Ottawa remains committed to making child care work, but did not suggest putting even more money on the table. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. And one more story, this one coming from the Energy File. The company behind the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion says it has encountered a technical issue that could delay the project's completion. Michelle Zadekian explains. Trans Mountain Corporation says it needs additional time to determine the safest and most prudent actions for minimizing further delay after discovering technical issues late last week. The company says it's fully focused on working toward an anticipated in-service date in the second quarter of this year. The Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, which will carry oil from Alberta to the West Coast, had been expected to be complete by the end of March. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press. All right, that's your look at the news. Let's move over to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Monday, you were asked all about politics. Politicians returned to Ottawa for Parliament's winter session. You were asked, what do you believe their top priority should be? 43% of you said disability issues. 29% of you said health care. 14% of you said the economy. And 14% of you said foreign interference. Got some responses via email yesterday. Feedback at AMI.ca. Feedback at AMI.ca. Devin writes in, I could not have agreed more with Alex Smythe. There you go, Alex, getting a little love. When he pointed out that if the Conservatives end up coming to power later next year, disability issues are not likely to be discussed for the next four years. Disability issues should most definitely be number one on the docket. And Sally writes in, I believe that the federal government and our provincial governments must prioritize... I use capital letters for a reason, disability issues, only because it is time that those of us who live with disabilities are not able to have a life. Also, we deserve to be perceived and treated like intelligent people with abilities, strength, knowledge, experience, and skills like everyone else, because that is who we are. The federal government must take our concerns seriously and stop dragging their heels with the Canada Disability Benefit Program. We have just as much right as anyone else to live in dignity and work and play without having to choose either to feed ourselves or pay our rent. Yet I know that both levels of government, federal and provincial, will most likely prioritize the economy over everything else as usual. Can't say, can't they see how useful and beneficial we are and we can be given a fighting chance. So big thank you to Sally for sending in that detailed email. Remember, you can always chime in via email feedback at ami.ca. Today's daily poll is all about protecting your personal data. British Columbia has implemented the Intimate Images Protection Act. It gives people recourse if their images are posted online without consent. That is obviously a significantly important conversation. I'm trying to broaden out the scope a little bit with the question today. How do you try to protect your data online? Anonymous browsing, antivirus software, limited personal posts, at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Let's throw this one over to Alex Smythe first. Alex, what are you doing to protect your data online? 
Yeah, Dave, so I do a bit of everything uh, from the three listed, but I will focus in on limiting personal posts. Uh, that is uh, certainly kind of the, the strongest move I've, I've taken to kind of protect my data and information online. I rarely, if ever, post anything on social media anymore. I, I just think there's very little benefit to it and uh, there's a lot more issues that can arise and just it's the fluid nature of social media in today's day and age and we've had many conversations around it i still think though it, there is uh, a value in having antivirus software in having anonymous browsing enabled it doesn't stop you know the concerns around other issues like um kind of what where the story bases from um especially too when you're on a two-hour daily a live television mm -hmm. show there's a lot of data mm -hmm. that people can pull from but i i always view it as do people really need to see my personal you know photos and and what i'm thinking what i'm up to you know they can tune in to now uh with dave brown to find out all that information like i don't need to go on social media to post that uh, on top of everything else so that's kind of the moves i take to kind of just control how my information is used online because especially with social media you're giving up control and power to these media companies that's part of the agreement that you do have when you are posting information there whereas if you're doing browsing online it's a bit more more of a gray area and then antivirus software is more just that added layer of protection so why expose yourself more yeah there's a lot of scraping that goes on there in the online world via all kinds of softwares that that it, there's really not a lot you can do about it but Laura I land very similarly to Alex limiting personal posts uh, it's it's just reached a point where I've kind of lost this the the perceived value of doing it. Maybe there's going to be stuff through group chats, WhatsApp Messenger, those kinds of places. But I'm at this point where I'm just not posting much of my personal stuff on uh, X or Facebook anymore. You know, some stuff's going to pop up here and there, but I'm just at this point where, where the, I, I'm losing sight of the value of putting these things in those places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe I should be a little more concerned than I am, but I don't really do any of these things personally. Um, I, I'm not the most tech-savvy person, but from what I understand, the Windows Defender and the kind of built-in protections on iOS are reasonable, kind of depending on what you're doing with your browsing. I only use anonymous browsing when I'm like gift shopping for my partner and I don't want it to pop up in their advertisements. I don't know if I see the value in, in keeping it on all the time. Uh, and as far as limiting personal posts go, like I would say that I take reasonable efforts. You know, I wouldn't, uh, for example, post something that maybe had my address in the shot, but uh, you know, that's more talking about individual threats, I would say, from someone on your social yeah, media who's yeah. looking to do you harm than like broad internet security. And you know, as, as kind of Alex alluded to, I worked as an AMI reporter for a number of years, so I know there's a lot of information out there about me that is publicly available, including my phone number, which was on business cards that I handed out for years. So, you know, that, that I think that's another conversation about kind of the value of social media versus security and, and limiting public posts for security. So uh, I do think that Unfortunately, most of the threats out there come from scams and phishing. So the biggest step that I take is just trying to be careful about what I'm clicking on and, and the sites yeah. that I'm visiting. And I would say that there was a time where it was pretty obvious or you know more obvious when you would get a phishing email. But I've had a few over the last year or two where I've thought, is this a legitimate email from Netflix? I'm kind of had to do a little yeah. digging. And yeah. I do think that's unfortunate. And I can certainly understand how people get, get taken that way.
Yeah, I did not put an option here of deep skepticism, but deep skepticism is also a very useful thing you can use to protect your data when you're out there in the digital space. But, you know, the reality is the world is going more and more digital, and sometimes there's only so much you can do. And, and I'm trying to work on this philosophy of not trying to uh, blame people or hold them personally accountable for what is a broken system in society around them. But, you know, there are little things you can do. And I do like your idea about anonymous browsing at gift shopping time. That's a smart one. That's a smart one from Laura Bain. Laura, don't go too far because you're back in the next segment. But in the meantime, I want to remind you that you can vote on the poll at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on X. I'll hit you with the email address again because I really loved those detailed emails that came in from yesterday's poll question. Feedback at AMI.ca. Feedback at AMI.ca. There's also the telephone, 1-866-509-4545. one 866 509-4545 coming up after the break Nordic Spas what a chance to relax and unwind maybe it's the sauna maybe it's the cold plunge Laura Bain had a chance to uh, give it a crack so she'll share her experience this is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca TV. Just so you know out there in the audience, a couple internet issues popping up around AMI HQ again today. Hopefully it's all been rectified and the squirrels have been chased out of the machinery, but you never know. Uh, we'll adjust and make do as necessary. As always, thank you for your patience. You know, considering the stress, maybe it's good to relax and unwind a little bit. Nordic spas offer a unique experience with the hot and the cold. Laura Bain recently dipped her toe into the trend and wants to share her experience. Hey, good morning, Laura. <laughs> I, I'd say good morning. <laughs> nice to talk to you, but I've, I've already spoken to you today. Yes, and um, I am experiencing just a little bit of delay on my end so hopefully uh, we'll get through this maybe we could use a nordic spa this morning by the sounds of things <laughs> hey so what made you want to try it what about the experience said to you hey this is going to be different from going for a standard like massage yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, when I said to my partner, I'm going to a Nordic spa, he was like, oh, are you uh, going to get a massage or going to get a pedicure? But uh, a Nordic spa is different from other spas in that you're not getting a service per se from a practitioner, even though they do sometimes offer those services on the premises. But basically, uh, Nordic spas offer contrasting forms of hydrotherapy where you sort of have the opportunity to get really hot and then get really cold. Um, so, you know, my friend and I signed up for this kind of two-hour thermal circuit at the place where we went to, and that gave us access to saunas, uh, two different types of saunas, and a cold plunge pool, a warming pool that was really pleasant and had Epsom salts in it. There was other little treats, like an area that had a mud mask you could do and a salt scrub. So you sort of go at your own pace, and uh, they, they don't really give you any rules, but in general, you want to go from hot to cold, and then 
and take a little relaxation break. And I wanted to give this a try because they've been growing in popularity. We've had a few come up in Nova Scotia in the last few years. It was my birthday, which was mentioned a few weeks ago on the show. And uh, I was just sort of looking for something to, to do with a friend. And the cost was reasonable. It was uh, $55 for two hours. So compared to going for something like a massage, it was, uh, it was doable. What does the science say about the health benefits? Yeah, so there's definitely like a lot of claims that I was able to find online going to different Nordic spa websites. So, uh, you know, things like detoxification, strengthening the immune system, soothing different aches, aches and pains, uh, improvements in mood kind of overall wellness improvements. Now, you know, I'm not saying it's it's out there. I, I, you know, do sort of pride myself a bit on my ability to do research as a graduate student. I couldn't really find anything specifically on quote unquote Nordic spas. But I will say that Nordic spas are, are a bit of a westernization or I guess a total westernization of, um, you know, a practice that has been happening in Scandinavian countries for thousands of years, which is going in something hot like a sauna and then getting cold, for example, by jumping in a cold lake or rolling in the snow. And I did find that there was some research uh, on sort of that type of, of thing on sort of in the Scandinavian context. And the research indicates that indeed it may reduce incidence of cardiovascular disease, uh, hypertension, dimension, uh, dementia, musculoskeletal concerns. Um, but this data is not uh, perfect. It was done by one group of researchers uh, and done in the context of a small sample size of male individuals in Finland. So how mm. much we can generalize that to kind of my Nordic spa experience or the type of experience you might have here in Canada? I'm not sure. So that's some of the context and a little bit of the minimal research. But what about your personal experience? How was it? Yeah, it was good. Um, it's sort of hard to describe what the environment was, but it was kind of mystical. It was low lighting and, um, you know, there were all these different pools and different types of lighting. I couldn't see much in there, but when I went in, my friend was like, oh, wow. Oh, and um, for me, I love the heat. I really enjoy saunas. I wish that I had one in my house, but um so obviously I enjoyed that part of it, but, uh, you know, with the cold plunge, which is kind of what everybody thinks about when they think of a Nordic spa, they're like, oh, I couldn't do that cold plunge. They do say to stay in there for just about 30 seconds. So um, after being in the heat, it sounds a little cliche, but jumping in the cold pool was sort of refreshing. I, I didn't mind it. What were some of your observations about the accessibility of the experience? Yeah, as far as the accessibility goes, for me, like speaking as someone who is partially sighted, at this particular Nordic spa, it was tough because the lighting was dim, as I mentioned, creating that mystical atmosphere. There were also... Um, you know, lots of different platforms and steps and slippy tile floors and, of course, pools that you could fall into. Um, and also, like, walking into a dark sauna could be awkward just not knowing where people are sitting in there. So I don't think I would be comfortable going back without a sighted guide, unfortunately, unless they were able to have the lights on. Um, 
I also think it's an environment that would be challenging for someone with limited mobility. Now, they did give us access to a private changing room without us asking just when they saw my cane. So I wouldn't call it an accessible change room, but it because it, it was rather small, but it was private, which was uh, created a more accessible experience for me, not having to navigate around kind of other strangers in the room and figure out where my stuff was and all that. Laura, my personal preference when it comes to heat is a steam room. They're, they're just less common than saunas, though. There's a lot more upkeep involved in a steam room. Got to make sure you're washing out the mold on the regular. But what's your preference, sauna or steam room? <laughs> uh, well, they had they had sort of two types of saunas there. One was a dry sauna. One was the steam room. I don't know. I sort of like the dry sauna myself, but I would take either i guess the steam room or the steam type sauna is a little more traditional and it does give you an opportunity to kind of infuse some different like scents into the room with essential oils and herbs and things like that but you know i would i would take either dave I'm really lucky my my building uh, next to the gym has a sauna and it's actually really nice. And I, Laura, I cannot believe it took me about three and a half years before I started using it. I guess, you know, COVID probably had a little something to do with that. I wasn't going to pop into a random sauna with a global pandemic going on. But th like there has to be something said for convenience, right? Because you're not always going to pack up your stuff and schlep outside the city to a Nordic spot to get some heat. So it's really nice when the stuff can sort of be a little bit closer to your fingertips. Oh yeah, totally. I, I wish that I had my own personal sauna. We do have a uh, gym in the building, but it doesn't have a sauna, unfortunately, or I would be down there all the time. Yeah, I used to uh, be a member of the YMCA in Ottawa. It was a, a downtown location, and they had the option of the sauna and the steam room and the gym and the pool, and their their price was always quite reasonable, and I always I always really admired that, right? When, like, you think about the gym that is sort of more like the community recreation center rather than just sort of like, here's a weight room and one private bathroom to change your clothes. Oh, absolutely. And we have a beautiful new YMCA here in Halifax, and I'm sure that they have all of that stuff. It's just, as you say, the convenience factor of, um, you know, are you going to like, it, it kind of takes some of the relaxation out of it, perhaps, if you have to spend like 20 minutes on a bus to, to get there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it kind of kills the vibes a little bit. So, Laura, maybe not even necessarily specific to this particular spa Nordique, but would you try to recreate this experience, maybe even like a weekend get a getaway to like a specified resort that specializes in this because there are places where it's not just oh you know you pay for a couple hours and you do the thing it's that you can sort of rent a cottage like next to a big facility sometimes it's even in the cottage itself they have everything available to you would you ever try to recreate this experience whether it be in the specificity of this spawn or dick or something even bigger scale well, I would certainly, I don't, I hadn't thought about recreating it. Um, I would certainly try it again. And I, I would try this one again. And I would also try a different one again. And the other one that we have here in Nova Scotia sort of is more of that outdoor experience, which is more traditional. Although I believe they serve alcohol, which I, I know some people really enjoy. I feel like for this one we went to, I enjoyed that they had sort of, uh, they asked people just to talk quietly and they didn't serve alcohol alcohol and there actually weren't any phones allowed which I don't think is the case for the other one so it was sort of a chance to kind of recharge and take a break from technology and sort of more of a meditative experience and maybe to connect with yourself
well for the person that you were there with. So um, I would go back again for that element of it. Uh, but yeah, I would definitely be open to trying especially some of the Nordic spas in Canada I know are in really beautiful locations mm. like Cananas. Cananaskis, I would do that for sure. Hey, Laura, thank you for this. Don't go too far because you're back for the entertainment report in about 30 minutes. So thank you for sharing your experience. Yeah, of course. That's Laura Bain, entertainment reporter, columnist based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Coming up after the break, the International Boats Show recently took place in Toronto. Lawrence Gunther has a recap of the event. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Toronto recently played host to the International Boat Show. The show featured quite a bit of technology from the electric boat world. Lawrence Gunther had a chance to attend the boat show, and he's the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. Nice to talk to you this morning. Dave, you hear this? That's my electric boat. That's, that's your own personal electric boat. Don't worry, Lawrence, you, you'll get a chance to talk about your personal electric boat, but I, I want to talk about the boat show more broadly yeah. first. Yeah. You know, it got you out of the comfy confines of Ottawa, Ontario. Why, oh, like, yeah. What makes the boat show such a big deal? It's just huge, Dave. It's at the Toronto Exhibition Place. It's a ginormous center. Like It's the biggest boat show in Canada, right? So everything's there. All the marina companies are there, all the boat manufacturers, the engine manufacturers, everyone who sells anything that has to do with boats. Personally, I went down there to for two things. One, to look at docks. I was looking at accessible docks. And that's a big thing because you can't just make an old crib and pile a dock on top of it anymore. You can't just make junk in the water and leave it there. You have to have things that kind in and out and, and leave no trace, right? And that's docks. So they have all sorts of really cool docks now that roll in, roll out. And I was looking at electric boats. I'm always interested in electric propulsion. So what were they showing off? What were some of the really notable electric boat exhibits? Because at a car show now, pretty much everything's about electric electric cars. What about the boat side? Oh, yeah, they really put a big push on the electric side of boats. You know, there's a lot of lake associations now in and around Ontario and even across Canada. They say, hey, we don't want gas-powered boats on our small lake. It's stinky. It leaves oil slicks. You know, people spill fuel, oil leaks and things like that. They just want electric or paddle boats. So, you know, there's a big push there. There's a market there already, a little pontoon boats, you know, with a small electric motors. You take your little after-dinner cruise around the lake, right? It's It's quiet. It doesn't smell. There's no noise. It's it's beautiful, and um, and then there's toys, right? Like electric cars. We're getting into faster electric boats. We're getting into fishing boats. We're getting into utility boats that are electric. Personally, I've had uh, electric engines on my boats now for well over 15 years. Why'd you make that switch? I, it's not a, so much a switch. I mean, there are boats that I have that is just electric, like my blind fishing boat. You know, I started that in 2006, and it's just an electric boat. It's quiet. I can hear everything around me. It only weighs about 100 pounds altogether, and I can drive that myself legally and, and confidently, oh. Oh. you know? 
<laughs> it's true, Dave. You can have a pleasure boat operator certificate as someone without sight. But, to, you know, what does that mean? You want, you have to be careful. And having a small electric boat that doesn't go fast, you can hear what's around you. And you're not going to get into trouble. As opposed to a gas boat, you can't hear anything when that motor's putting along. And uh, But I also, on every boat I have, I have an electric motor on the front. So the big motor gets me to where I want to go. And then that shuts off. We put the electric motor in and we do the rest of the next few hours just moving the boat around with the electric engine at the front of the boat. And these electric motors, Dave, they are state of the art. They have built in uh, a compass so you can just point it and it just keeps you going in that direction. It doesn't spin you around in circles. Or you can click on the anchor lock feature and it creates a satellite point. And every time your boat just drifts away a little bit, the electric motor responds and brings it right back to where you were. So you're always really, you're, it's almost like you're anchored, you know, mm. an anchor, you don't move around at all, but this is pretty close to it. And it's all done with the intelligence. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Lawrence, what's the bigger picture here? What's the prospect for the sector as a core? Like, as you're going to this show and people are thinking about the future of electric boats, what were some of the most amazing revelations that you came across? There's a company in Montreal that's making beautiful, big electric motors. They they sold 15 of their big electric cruise boats to, uh, to Montreal for uh, tourism industry there. You can rent these boats. You can cruise up and down the uh, the St. Lawrence River into the Richelieu River, uh, you know, and, and that's pretty amazing for them to do that. They're, the Quebec government's investing in this company. You see other companies, that startups, you know, these engineers that are getting on ball on track with this. And now it's at the point where the big companies are starting to buy them out. Like Yamaha just bought out Torquedo. Torquedo is the number one electric Boat, uh, motor manufacturer for boats in the world. If you uh, if you want an electric motor for your kayak, that's a, that's probably the number one is the Torquedo. So Yamaha buying them out. They're one of the top four outboard manufacturers in the world. Uh, Evinrud they stopped making gas powered outboard motors in 2020, and they said, you know what, we're not going to make any more gas ones. We're going to the next time you hear from us, it's going to be electric. Mercury just bought a company, and they they've got four electric boat uh, motor options out there now, and they had a big reveal at the boat show with the president of Brunswick Marine for for the for North America. These this is the biggest boat and motor manufacturer in the world. And they had a, an actual press release uh, showcasing their new electric motors. So, yeah, there were some big players there. How much conversation was going on about the actual fuels that people are using for boats? I know at the New York boat show last week, there was a lot of talk about hydrogen power. Oh, that would be the sweet thing for sure, right? You know, something that you can fuel up and you can go a long way. Look, the problem with right now, Dave, batteries weigh a lot, right? You know, a, a, a pickup truck, you can put 2,500 pounds of batteries in there if you want to go anywhere, any any distance. You put 2,500 pounds of batteries in a boat, you need a big boat, right? Mm -hmm. So every time you add a battery, you have to make the boat bigger. In the end, it doesn't matter how much, how big you make the boat you know, and how many batteries you put in it, you're only going to get an hour of full speed. And most people drive their boat at full speed. It's not like a car where you're just driving along at half speed, quarter speed. You know, when you start your boat and you're, you've got the lake in front of you and there's nothing around, you you pin the throttle, you, you, you go for it, right? You do that with an electric outboard, you're going to go in about an hour and then you're going to have to paddle back. Beyond being a great boater and a great fisherman, you are also the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. What's coming up on the next episode? Oh, wow. We just talked to this artist. He, you know, I like to talk to artists and see the world through their eyes, oh. right? And how do they get there? And how, you know, what's the process they're using to create their art? Because it's not like taking a picture. I'm, 
photo photography can be art for sure. But, you know, when you take a brush and paint and you do something with that and, you, you know, you're really interpreting that and getting an understanding of what that is and having that description, it's just uh, it really, it's almost like you're seeing through their eyes. Super cool. Going outdoors and uh, getting that artistic feel with Lawrence. Love that one. Lawrence, have a great day. Thank you for this. Thanks, Dave. That's Lawrence Gunther. He is the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. You can find that show Saturdays, 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Coming up in 60 seconds, from the water to precipitation and the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Tech stocks helped lead to an overall rise in Canada's main stock index in yesterday's trading. Toronto's TSX index gained 74 points to close at 21,200. New York's Dow Jones average surged 224 points and the Nasdaq climbed 172. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index added 38 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.58 cents U.S. Some pharmacare policy experts admit they're concerned about competition and patient access to much-needed medication after Manulife announced its coverage of certain prescription drugs will only apply at Loblaw-owned pharmacies. The move affects 260 medications under Manulife's specialty drug program that treat ailments such as rheumatoid arthritis and cancer. The insurance company says moving to Loblaw exclusively, including Shoppers Drug Mart, will give patients more choice for pickup or delivery. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Oh, yes, I'm sure it's all about patient choice. Let's bring in Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, precipitation on the West Coast. Yeah, Dave, it's uh, been a period of relentless rain in B.C., and that is set to continue with more rainfall warnings and special weather uh, advisories and alerts throughout the week. Today, however, offers a quick reprieve from all the moisture before it picks up again tomorrow. This is caused by an ongoing Pineapple Express weather event. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the term Pineapple Express, no, I'm not talking about the movie with Seth Rogen. It is a specific weather pattern that happens out in the Pacific Ocean where this warm mass of moisture comes from the Pacific and really just hammers the B.C coast. And so this has already been uh, um, kind of connected with intense heavy rains, but also flooding risks and mudslide and other kind of landslide uh, events. This system has already been uh, deadly because a snowmobiler uh, was killed this weekend due to an avalanche, which was spurred on by these intense weather conditions and this moisture. So the sheer volume of moisture is something that I really want to highlight because from Saturday to yesterday, parts of Vancouver Island saw 300 millimeters of rain. And that is set to continue because by the end of the day Thursday, some parts of the island, some parts of the uh, mainland could see an additional 125 millimeters of rain. So that really puts into perspective just to 
sheer amount of rainfall and moisture that they're expecting through this week. And obviously with that amount of rain comes huge risks when it comes to flooding, landslides, other issues, especially if you're up at elevation because it's gonna be a warmer weather pattern. There's going to be potential issues with more avalanche risks or other um, kind of issues around snow and ice in the region. So obviously take while only uh, be very cautious when you're out outdoors, out in areas where there is risk of flooding, landslides, if you're near bodies of water, be cautious. One piece of good news, however, as we go into the weekend and into next week, it should be a lot drier. So there is reprieve coming for those out in BC when it comes to the moisture, Dave. Right on. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. That is Thank Alex you. Smythe. You'll hear from Alex again in the second hour of the show. But coming up next, there are some programs and events encouraging children's growth through educational play. Community reporter Anna Kim highlights a few of them happening in Red Deer and Edmonton. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Technology in school is supposed to make teachers' lives easier and students' lives easier. But you know, with technology, that's not always the case, especially when it comes to the accessibility experience. Wataskawin community reporter Anna Kim has some gripes with how technology's been rolled out in the education system. Hey, good morning, Anna. Nice to chat with you again today. Good morning, it is good to chat about certain things, and I think that this is an important one. It's real talk. It's real talk. And real talk is important, especially as people with disabilities encountering real events in the real world. Our personal experiences really matter. So what's been your experience with technology in the classroom? It has been slow in a way. I just finished my high school career. I just wrote my, my physics 30 diploma for, you know, those Albertans who went through that struggle oh, with me. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. It was, it, it's been an interesting 12 years. And uh, yeah, I have some gripes with some of the ways that technology was accessed personally for me because I love my teachers, some of them. You know, you get good and bad teachers. <laughs> those good teachers, they really tried to embrace my needs saying you know i i don't need a whole lot i just need digital versions of my textbooks and some some large print well not some all of my things in large print so you know up to size 18 font they embraced it and i appreciate them at least the good teachers did the school system in general had a hard time realizing that there aren't just two sides of a spectrum. There isn't just the, the those who need special education and that extra help and those who are just the, the, the students who don't need a whole lot of accommodations. It has a hard time compromising with those students in the middle who need certain things for their education so that they can thrive, but don't need everything. And so I have had the worst struggle in my high school experience and some in my you know, lower junior high, trying to advocate for the use of technology. So I went and wrote my diplomas. I wrote four of them this year and it was intense. 
And I was not able to get a digital version of this exam, in which I know they have because they've been rolling them out slowly to almost everyone. And I wasn't able just to get a digital version of this exam. I, I was given the big print form, which is on one foot by two foot sheets of paper, which some people need. And I commend all of those who use that paper because it's a little loud. It, it's just, I, I created a bit of a windstorm every time I flipped a page mm. and I felt, and, and I wasn't put in a separate room. I was put in a room with all the other kids who received accommodations. And I'm over here in the corner with three desks around me making a windstorm and being really loud every time I turn a page. And I'm bothering the kids who need a quiet space, who have these certain accommodations. And there's just a struggle to find that happy medium. And for those who are not strong advocates and have a really hard time voicing what they need, it's hard for them to mm. receive the best education that they can because they don't know how to approach it. And if it's something that is not dealt with very quickly and it just keeps pushing on to you know extending to oh maybe you'll get it next time then they kind of lose their voice and their confidence in trying to advocate for themselves yeah it's it, it becomes an unfair onus right that certainly learning to advocate is an important part of the development and developing your life with a disability uh prospect but it's also deeply unfair that the onus is perpetually put on people and anna what's also unfair is that you didn't create these systemic barriers but you're the ones who lived them and you're certainly not being paid by the school board or the ministry of education but what improvements would you suggest i think that trying to educate not you know your teachers definitely but those who are higher up because that seems to be where more of the issues lie you know i can't get a digital version of a provincial exam even though i've been talking about it for the past year and a half since i've started writing diplomas and that's what i've experienced in my classroom and those who control a lot of these things seem to only have this mindset of there's one over here who doesn't really need anything and then one over here who needs everything and they can't just be happy with that medium so trying to educate as to what technology can do you know having having digital versions of things being able to change the contrast on for online prints do, do that educate yeah. just a little bit you know, <laughs> yeah. educate the educators do what i have to do bring in people who are strong advocates to say these are what of, of varying degrees and say these are what people need this is this is how things should be adjusted and it's just, it's such a slow process. I understand that in big things, things take time. But at the same time, how long has education been a thing? And how long yeah. have we had to deal with this? Yeah, it's, it's the idea that this requires leadership and it requires leaderships who understand the, some of the unique challenges that go along with disabilities. Ideally, those leaders in the ministries and in the school boards and in schools would have disabilities. But if you perpetually create barriers in their entire educational experience, people with disabilities will never be in those decision-making roles. And the problem just continues and continues and continues. Yeah, exactly. It's a never-ending loop. And so personally, I think it has to start with the schools, the, the local schools, and trying to find students who have a voice and have that confidence in those advocacy skills is actually quite hard, I find, 
nowadays. People are standing up and, and voicing their opinions, but it seems to be that there's a, a smaller group of people who are really, you know, they, they have their gripes with systems or with processes, and they just can't quite articulate or voice what they, they have because of the fear of, of being shut down. And I, I know this. I went through through that whole experience of trying to figure out how to advocate for myself because I was always kind of told that, oh, well, that's selfish. Why yeah. would you do that? You yeah. don't need something different. And it caused some issues. And so if we can start with the students and then go to the schools and then go to the school board and just it's a, it's a very slow process, but slowly, slowly bringing that education out of the, the little circle that is, you know, students and teachers and yeah. trying desperately to educate those who are outside that circle. Anna, there's kind of a common thread through this report today. It's not just your own personal educational experiences. It's unique opportunities that can help children with growth and development, including an event taking place in Red Deer called Mess is Best that's a sensory-friendly uh, event going on through February and March. Why did this one jump out to you? Why did a sensory-friendly event jump out to you? I am a very tactile person. Uh, that is just... That's how I roll. I can't wear certain clothes because of how they feel, and I can just feel every fiber on them. And I've had to slowly grow and learn and understand why I am that way and understand, you know, why I can't eat mushrooms because they have this just certain feel, which I can't – I love the flavor, can't get with it. And so starting to develop those those abilities those you know fine motor skills the learning how to differentiate between different textures and learning what you like and don't like that starts just like anything at the youngest ages of you know when you start to develop cognitive ability of my nephew who's who's slowly learning how to to walk around and and explore he's touching everything because he wants to he wants to know the world around him and so it's important for for sensory activities to develop that whole you know side of of child development understanding the world around you seeing what happens when you do an action right if you go paint on the walls at home you may end up you know <laughs> yeah. in timeout corner <laughs> you if you see, go paint you on might, the walls yeah. of this this thing in red deer you'll you'll end up with messy clothes what what uh you're almost talking about my autobiographical experience over there a little bit of writing on the walls i thought i was an artist at a young age uh what are some of the like particular activities that are being put on offer here for kids to actually play with their senses the things that you can't do at home right all the all the messy things water is is a big one for for that water toys because you know that's limited to bathtubs and maybe pots and pans but tubs of water things like you know orbeez all the all the fun soft sensory things it's it's about mess so you know mud and paint and all the the joys that kids want to embrace at home in an environment where they're able to to socialize with other young kids and parents can socialize and not you know be sent to time out for having to or enjoying using paint everywhere <laughs> mess is best is taking place in red deer with sessions in february and march you can register by visiting visiting fsca.ca fsca.ca or call 403-343-6400 403-343-6400 okay that's a little bit 
tactile. But Anna, you've also got something to play with the ears, something a little bit more musical. Gershwin's Music Key, one of the really cool things getting to know you here over the last six months or so is that you love music. But what makes this event a little bit different from other classical performances? I kind of went into this report with a little bit of the mindset of, of family day, because that's coming up in February. Mm. And families always need something to do together. And so this is a great way to introduce young kids to music, because it's only 50 minutes. It's not, you know, an opera or a symphony or uh, a, a live production, but it's only a, just under an hour, and it caters to everyone it has that that classical gershwin music which always tells a story I, I love gershwin and then they have the actors on stage who are playing out the story in which the music is telling and so as much as it's an audio experience and you can hear the story in the music it's also a little bit of a visual one too where you can see the story and it's great for kids to understand that music has story, that there's a, a, a meaning to it. And this is just a great introduction to young kids and how to get them in love with the arts. I'm a little biased. I love the arts. That's because, <laughs> you know, my mom took me to, to the Nutcracker as a kid and I fell in love with the music. But some kids don't necessarily enjoy seeing pretty shiny dancing blobs on a stage and listening to music. So this is much more interactive and a great way to introduce them to that whole new sphere of what the live arts is like. It's taking place at the Edmonton Windspear Center. What do you like about that venue? Oh, I cannot talk about the Windspear Center enough. It is it is an acoustic, glorious building. I don't know how to explain it. It's just I had <laughs> the, the amazing opportunity of going to see Hamnell's Messiah uh, there I got to to see it with my choir and it's just you sit anywhere in that place and the sound reverberates off the walls it's built for music and so it just intensifies everything and it's almost I don't know if this is the case but it's almost like there's more emotion when it's in something like the Winspear Center just because of how it sounds it's just it's gorgeous and I, I can't I can't talk about it enough it, <laughs> It just sounds amazing. In the world of music, venue matters. There's no doubt about that. And that's why great music halls will blow away arenas and stadiums forevermore. Yeah, 100%. Super, super cool. Hey, Anna, thank you for putting together this theme today. I, I love it. So thank you for sharing your own experiences and thinking about the experiences of other. Super, super cool. Have a great day. Enjoy the next couple weeks. Thank you. You too. Talk to you later. That is Anna Kim, community reporter in Wetaskiwin, Alberta. Gershwin's Music Key is taking place on Saturday, February 17th at Edmonton's Windspear Center. For more information, I'm just going to give you the phone number here. 780-428-1414. That's 780-428-1414. All right. That's community reporter. Anna Kim in one minute. Laura Bain has the entertainment report. But first, Samsung has big ideas for anti-glare screens. Mike Dubusky fires up another edition of Tech Trends. 
From ABC News Tech Trends, Samsung's brightest OLED screen ever is in its latest S95D television, and the company claims it's the first TV to fully get rid of glare. This is not new. People have seen glare-free televisions before. They're usually just a matte finish, and those matte finishes tend to disperse the glare, not get rid of it. Dan Cooley, editor-at-large of CNET, says Samsung isn't using a matte finish, but instead a specialized coating. Samsung's new proprietary technology doesn't appear to be one of those fuzzy matte screens. It doesn't change the off-angle viewing and it gives you this ability to basically make those lights behind you go away and not show up as hot spots. Outside of the anti-glare coating, the TV gets the same quantum dot OLED technology shared by other Samsung TVs. And the whole thing is just 11 millimeters thick. The S95D is available in sizes up to 77 inches. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. 77 inches is one heck of a big TV. Let's turn to the world of entertainment. A new documentary called The Greatest Night in Pop explores the making of We Are the World. Laura Bain, this documentary jumped out to you. Yeah, it sure did. Maybe one to watch on your 77-inch television. (laughs) (laughs) My personal TV is not 77 inches. I live in a condo. I don't have that kind of square footage. (laughs) <laughs> Me neither, Dave. Um, yeah, this is called The Greatest Night in Pop, and uh, came out on Netflix yesterday, so I checked it out last night. So basically, it tells the story of when in 1985, 46 of the most popular musicians at the time, such as Michael Jackson, Cindy Lauper, Bruce Spring- Springsteen, got together and over the course of one night, recorded the song, We Are the World, to raise funds for famine relief in Africa. Now, the documentary uses a mix of archival footage and new interviews and i think we have a trailer that we're going to play that just needs a little bit of setup we sure do four voices are heard speaking the most notable being lionel richie and bruce springsteen there's a montage of footage from the studio production of we are the world along with photos of the artists mixed with modern day interview footage i received this call from Belafonte, and he wants to do some kind of a song for famine relief in africa Basically, what he said was, I need you. We just thought we'd pull together as many artists as we could and figure it out. It was just a wish list. He said yes without knowing who was going to be on it. Bob Dylan. Stevie Wonder. Paul Simon. Cindy Lauper. Pat Midler. Billy Joel. Steve Perry. Willie Nelson. I think we have Tina. Sheila E. Diana Ross. Everybody was there. Laura, pretty, pretty iconic moment in music history. Yeah, it sure was. So I think that a lot of folks would have heard this song or seen the video. And, you know, I went and I kind of rewatched that video this morning and the end product, it sounds really great. It's really polished. And it doesn't give you a sense of kind of the circumstances that made this possible, which, you know, basically Harry Belafontaine was inspired by Band-Aid in the UK and he wanted to do something similar, but felt that it should be led by black artists. So he recruited Quincy Jones, Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, and Stevie Wonder uh, to write this song. And kind of 10 days before the recording, they still didn't have the song written. So it was really down to the wire. And then they undertook this sort of Herculean effort to convince all of these 46 artists to get together in a recording studio 
like after the 1985 American Music Awards ceremony that night to kind of get in their separate limos and go to this recording studio because that was, of course, the time when everybody was going to be in the same place. And they worked through the night. They started after midnight and they worked like all the way through to the next morning. And artists were tired. Some artists were skeptical about the project. There were artists that got frustrated and walked out and never made it onto the project. So it was really cool to see the behind the scenes and the different personalities that that came out and especially I found it really neat some of the artists that you know they sound great in the final track but they actually felt really insecure and shy about their parts because it was sort of being done on the fly and you see these major artists that don't typically work together kind of figuring things out in the moment and developing these harmonies so um yeah I I would highly recommend watching the doc and I, I think I would recommend watching it and then after that listening to or watching the we are the world song just for that contra- contrast oh uh, you know what I I'm I'm you've I think you've made the business case to me here Laura because this does sound cool and I love the idea of artists collaborating like like that and, and to sort of and to sort of capture the collaboration and hear the story to me that's fascinating because because it happens a lot in music today but maybe not quite with the purpose of we are the world yeah and this was sort of something that I was thinking about and uh you know a question that I have for you and and I don't know if I quite know the answer but whether you think that something like this could happen together do you think that the biggest pop stars of our time could come together for a cause and put out something like this I I do it it wasn't that long ago that uh, a bunch of artists got together and covered what's going on by Marvin Gaye although when I say it wasn't that long ago it was probably about 20 years ago (laughs) so maybe <laughs> I'm dating myself as always as uh, someone who used to be deeply in touch with pop culture but Laura I, I believe with modern with modern recording technology and I also believe with a lot of artists being more socially conscious maybe it's not to the degree of getting 44 artists together but I could definitely see collaboration at a smaller scale maybe a handful five to ten uh, picking up United causes here and, and, I, and I feel like it could really it could really go somewhere Mm-hmm. I, I sort of feel like prior to watching this documentary, I thought, no, it probably couldn't happen today because so many things are different. And I do think that perhaps kind of the end product would, would be different because, you know, they had this kind of powerful release where radio stations played it all at the same time. And of course, you know, we've got social media, we're not using cassette tapes, or, you know, a lot of things are different. But when I understood that this really wasn't, you know, this was driven by a couple of people um, who really had to work hard to bring all of these egos and bring all of these personalities together, I thought, yeah, you know, if we did have a couple of artists that were motivated to do that, I think this could happen again. And, um, you know, this is a whole other topic, but I think for me personally, I, I do like to see artists using their platform for positive change. Laura, I didn't have this in the intro, but where's it streaming? Oh, it's on Netflix, uh, and it does have audio description, and it's uh, an hour and 37 minutes or so. Digestible. Laura, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk. Coming up after the break, a couple of news stories and the regional news update. And Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at AMIplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Tuesday, January the 30th, 2024. Where did the month of January go? Coming up in the second hour of the show, the BC's Corner Service says there were over 2,500 suspected illicit drug deaths last year. Garth Mullins from the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users reflects on the core of the overdose crisis. And in much, much lighter news, it's another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Alicia Yardley, Karen McGee, and Alex Smythe will uh, battle it out. The hour begins with the regional news update. British Columbia is where the first story comes out of. BC is banning new post-secondary schools from enrolling international students for the next two years. Premier David Eby says there are serious quality questions that have to be asked of new and old schools. Expectations of the level of quality are the same. There are institutions that are not meeting our expectations right now. BC government data shows about 54% of international students are in private post-secondary institutions. Over to the prairies, residents and businesses in and around Edmonton are still being told to limit their water use today. EPCOR has issued a mandatory ban on non-essential water use after a pump issue at the E.I. Smith Water Treatment Plant. EPCOR Director of Engineering and Technical Services, Craig Bonneville, lays out how the company is trying to address the issue. We had crews responding right when the failure was first detected, as I said, approximately 2 a.m. this morning. And we have all resources, both EPCORs and our contracting partner suppliers to make the repairs as uh, soon as possible. And over to the Atlantic provinces, the New Brunswick and federal governments are launching a committee to understand labor shortages in the province's construction sector. The province says 4.2% of construction jobs are currently unfilled, and estimates show there will be over 8,000 retirements over the next eight years in the sector. It says the Labor Force Adjustment Committee will complement work already being done to increase participation in apprenticeships and skilled trades. That's your look at the regional news. Let's turn to sports for a chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, there was a marquee matchup in the National Basketball Association last night. The Denver Nuggets snuck past the Milwaukee Bucks 113-107. What made this game so interesting? Uh, well, uh, first of all, it was Doc Rivers' uh, first game taking over for the Milwaukee Bucks after Adrian Griffin was relieved of his duties rather weirdly last week or the week before. Um, so there was a bunch of storylines in that, and the broadcast was talking about that and the uh, interesting things around what he can bring to the team and whether there was something going on before, whether this was pre-planned. There was a whole bunch of discussions related to that. But as for the game itself, whenever you get a chance to see uh, Jamal Murray um, and uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo take on each other, it's it's always a good game. And this had all kinds of good stuff. There was runs on both both teams. Uh, Milwaukee got off to a pretty commanding lead in the first quarter, and then... Denver climbed back and climbed back. I was thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed through the whole game. 
watching the talent that exists on both sides of the basketball. So very interesting game for sure. Yeah, fundamentally a great basketball game is about great talent and uh, these two teams as uh, champions of the last couple of years uh, can certainly offer that. Okay, Brock, let's turn to a para-sport. You and I are always talking about recognizing para-athletes, but you've got a thought about referees and officials and judges and how they could be recognized. So this stems from uh, the Bocce Canada announcing that their Canadian uh, representation for the 2024 Paralympic Games, as far as officiating, will be Gary Vanderbees. And there's one Canadian official going over, which will be Gary. And it got me to thinking that in, when you watch international hockey, so I'm talking uh, world championships, uh, world juniors, um, and things like that. You, what you'll see in the bronze and gold medal game before they give the athletes their medals, before they give the trophy away, you'll see them recognize the official by giving the official some kind of plaque or like a little trophy that signifies, hey, you refereed in this bronze or gold medal game. Here is your commemorative thing to to signify that. So what I'm wondering from you, Dave, is... Do you think this should translate into the Olympics and Paralympic Games? So, in essence, if you referee a gold medal game or a bronze medal game, should you also be recognized and get some kind of commemorative piece to show that you officiated in this monumental game? Well, typically, you get to officiate in those games for your performance throughout the tournament. So I think it's pretty obvious that, yeah, they should get a recognition. And Brock, I'm surprised they're not doing it already. Me too. And uh, at first, when I saw the World Championships, kind of the World Championships, the World Juniors, uh, kind of get these these tokens of appreciation, I kind of thought to myself, eh, this is kind of weird that you're doing this. It's kind of gimmicky. It's kind of like, thank you for doing your job. But as I've seen it more and more over the years, I, it's it's grown on me more where I'm like, I like this. And I think, you know, we we focus on the athletes and we should. Uh, but I also think the, the officials deserve the credit. And I'm certainly not saying, and I don't think neither are you, suggesting that they should get a medal like the uh, Olympians or Paralympians, but they should get some level of token of appreciation of, hey, here's here's what you get because you've earned the right to get to this this game. And as you point out, it's not as if they go, okay, we're going to put all the names of a hat in the hat of a, officials and we're going to draw one out and that's our gold medal game uh, official. It is a very well thought out process of how did you do through the tournament? And so you earn that. And so to me, you also earn the right to get some level of appreciation uh, that you've done it. And you can also bring home to your family and say, I got to, to you know, officiate the gold medal game. Here's my commemorative piece for that. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. You as well. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, the BC Coroner Service says there were a suspected 2,500 illicit drug deaths last year. Garth Mullins from the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users will reflect on some of the issues at the core of the overdose crisis. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Events, now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The BC's Coroner Service released a report last week about suspected illicit drug deaths. Over 2,500 people passed away last year in suspected overdoses. Garth Mullins has more on the issue of the opioid crisis, the overdose crisis, and safe supply. Garth is the host of the Crackdown podcast. He's also a board member of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. Hey, Garth, thank you for making time this morning to talk about this really important issue. Hey, Dave, thanks for having me. So BC's coroner, Lisa LaPointe, specifically pointed to fentanyl in her report. How much is fentanyl driving this issue? Uh, the vast majority of the overdoses have uh, the cause detected by the coroner of fentanyl. And uh, not like the kind they use at the hospitals, but the kind that comes off the street with lots of unknown constituents and unknown potency. And that's what's really killing people is they don't know whether they're getting something that's really, really strong or somewhere in the middle. So they just don't know uh, if it's going to knock them out or kill them or what's going to happen. There's been a lot of conversation about safe supply in the last week in mainstream media, but it's certainly been a conversation for the better part of a couple of years now. Where is safe supply in terms of a solution to some of the issues that are popping up right now? And safe supply is a demand that came from us, uh, people like me who've been uh, drug users for most of our lives and started to form organizations and movements to stop the deaths. So our movements came up with the idea several years ago, and we, we recognized that safe supply, which is basically uh, substituting pharmaceutical drugs for the street drugs, um, we recognized that that was the thing that was going to stop the deaths because, uh, you know, kicking drugs, quitting, all that stuff, it's a good aspiration. doesn't work for a lot of people, and if it does, it can take many tries and many years, and when the drug supply is toxic, people can die within that time. So right now, safe supply is still mostly an idea. It's a small pilot project. Maybe 5% of the people uh, who need it are getting some kinds of uh, prescriptions like this. But unfortunately, we're a long way from having those kind of programs that could really stop the deaths uh, in British Columbia or across Canada. What are some of the templates that might exist in regard to providing safe supply? Because it's certainly not a brand new idea globally, but it feels like one that Canada's only really grappled with in the last couple of years. So what are some of the templates and what are some of the challenges in creating an effective safe supply program? Well, some of the templates I think of, uh, you know, I was in Geneva just in October, and Switzerland has a prescription heroin program. So they just, they don't have the overdose situation that we have at all. Uh, they have very small, negligible number of overdoses. And uh, that's because if you are wired to, say, heroin or uh, opioid like that, in Geneva, you can go to a clinic and get prescribed pharmaceutical-grade heroin, uh, lots of people, uh, t you know, take up that offer and are able to, you know, have a regular life, go to work, everything else like that. Uh, so to me, that's the, the and that's been going for a very long time. There's other states, other governments that do that sort of thing. Uh, but here uh, in Canada, we've seemed we've we, this has become very politicized and controversial instead of being sort of a, a boring medical uh, thing with a boring medical clinic. 
Yeah, how much of stigmatization ends up affecting that politi politicization and not understanding how this issue ends up, ends up impacting people from all different walks of life? I think the stigma is a big part of it. And certainly there's politicians that have always uh, loved to try to get into power by scaring people or scapegoating, uh, you know, groups of marginalized folks. And we see that happening in Canada uh, periodically, and especially in the last, you know, two years or so, there's been a real uptick of it. And anytime you get that kind of scapegoating, any any solutions that would be um, regularly discussed just through the evidence for and against us, suddenly it's a big controversial um, fear-based discussion instead of just something that's about the, the facts or the evidence. There's also uh, a lot of holistic things that can be done here. I think about the issue of housing uh, as a big one, mental health services as another. What's the bigger picture in terms of addressing some of the core issues here? Well, I mean, for me, the biggest thing, the first thing we have to address is death. And uh, I've just lost so many uh, friends, people I care about, that that's where it has to start. And... Um, the beginning of all of this is is stopping the deaths, and that means uh, separating people from the toxic drug supply. Canada had experiments with alcohol prohibition over 100 years ago, and what we found is it created organized crime, you know, Al Capone-type people, and it also created moonshine and bootleggers, and that the moonshine uh, often became contaminated and killed or made lots of people very sick. And when we stopped doing that, we stopped having organized crime involved in alcohol prohibition, and we stopped having people uh, dying from alcohol poisoning of an afternoon. Uh, so that change has to come to drugs. And I know it sounds a little bit radical, but it's been a long time coming. Drugs have been illegal in Canada since uh, 1907 is when it started. It started amid a big wave of racist panic, you know, sort of anti-Chinese, anti-Japanese uh, politics and backlash that was going on. And so we need to do what we did with alcohol. We need to end prohibition, end the drug war, stop sending people to jail over it, um, stop having people in the thousands die over it and have an adult conversation about how to organize society. Because right now there's no rules. It's the Wild West. There's no regulation over those drugs. I think we should bring them under regulation, make sure the contents are known, make sure that people can't just mix them up somewhere in a secret lab and sell whatever they want. Uh, we should We should actually rein this all in. Garth, like you said, and I don't want to lose sight of it, ultimately this is a story about people. It's an issue that dramatically impacts people, but there's also people who are working to address it in real time, not just grappling with big ideas, but practical initiatives. So the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, what are some of the initiatives that are underway right now uh, to assist individuals? Well, we have fought for uh, over 25 years every drug policy reform that's really happened in this country. So from needle exchanges to safe injection sites to people being able to get uh, hep C treatment, um, we fought for all of those things. And, uh, you, you know, that means going into the streets and protesting, but also getting on those government committees and elbowing our way into those rooms and high offices and uh, we've also been working more recently uh, for safe supply and decriminalization. So, I mean, that's the most one of the most important things that we can do. 
on the you know individual level, we also run a small safe injection site, uh, and we've reversed my God, hundreds of overdoses, thousands perhaps. Um, so we save lives pretty much every day around there and hand out harm reduction supplies. So we're going to you know, keep doing that kind of work. And just on the way out the door, your podcast, why do you want to start a podcast? What do you explore? What do you explore on the show? Well, myself and uh, several other people, members of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, we looked around um, about five years ago at the media representations and popular culture representations of drug users, and we realized it was pretty pretty stereotypy, pretty nasty, and that we could tell our stories better than a lot of people could. And so that's why we started the podcast, so that we could tell the stories from the trenches of the drug war and maybe try to change things. No, that's not dissimilar to what we're doing here at AMI in regard to disability <laughs> and platforming disability. Nothing for us without us. And if uh, we don't get the opportunity to offer representation, then who will? Hey, Garth, I would love to catch up with you again down the road with any news developments. Thank you for taking some time today. Thank you to you and your colleagues for all the work that you're doing. Same back at you, Dave. Thanks very much. That's Garth Mullins, a board member of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. For more information about their work, you can visit their website, V. A-N-D-U dot org. V-A-N-D-U dot org. Coming up after the break, an opportunity to, uh, well, lighten the mood a little bit. I guess the topic's kind of about greenwashing. So mildly lighter, but not really. When Alex Smith brings a story about Toyota lying about some of their emissions. I'll weigh in. Ramya Amuthan will weigh in. As will Nazreen Abdel-Majid. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Alex Smythe, looks like you got a story here that uh, pretty much amounts to greenwashing in a pretty significant way. Uh, yeah, Dave. Uh, the One of the largest, if not the largest, auto manufacturer in the world currently Toyota, uh, they had a raid at one of their facilities uh, yesterday at an engine plant in Japan, and this comes as part of a probe into claims that the company has lied on its emissions testing. Charles de Ledesma has the details. Transport officials have raided the plant of a Toyota Group company to investigate cheating on engine testing. As the company says, it kept its status as the world's top automaker in 2023, selling 11.2 million vehicles. Hours after the probe began at Toyota Industry Corporation's plant in central Japan, Toyota chairman Akio Toyoda vowed to steer the company out of scandal and ensure the Japanese automaker sticks to making good cars. For testing, scandal surfaced first last year. No major accidents, though, have been reported in connection with any of the cheating. I'm Charles Dilodesma. And obviously, you know, it's nice that the uh, chairman has uh, some nice puns to, to share in there and not addressing <laughs> anything around the actual scandal. A, um, a man after my own heart. <laughs> but uh, so this actually comes after there's other reports of uh, uh, kind of cheating on emissions from other uh, kind of investigations and even subsidiaries of Toyota being found guilty of it and some even claiming they 
been doing it since 2000, the mid 2000, 2003, 2005, they've been cheating on these, uh, these emission testing. So this is a, a, a very prolonged um, kind of period of this uh, going on. And so this, to me, I, I immediately recall what happened with Volkswagen not too long ago, and that they were uh, found to be cheating on their emissions testings as well. And uh, trying to find some facts and figures about how much it ended up costing them. Some reports say that uh, at this point, it's cost Volkswagen nearly $33.3 billion once all the fines, the lawsuits, everything has been taken into account. I want to find out from you too, what do you think if these claims are confirmed with all the uh, the raids and investigation to be true around Toyota, what do you think the punishment should be for Toyota? Ramya, we'll start with oh. you. Is there such thing? Like, can we really punish? I mean, the punishment would be that uh, people who are fans or, uh, you know, loyalty towards or are, 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 their reputation be tarnished, right? Like that kind of thing. But when it comes to these, you know, private companies, how do we really, um, how do we really draw a line or or put up a wall and say, and these are the consequences? I guess the consequences would have to be attached to some kind of legislation or expectation of these companies. And if those aren't in place, then where do we pull back? Yeah, like unless it's money, which in the Volkswagen case at $33.3 billion seems like a lot of money. But Alex, yeah. there's there's nothing in the private sector that just stops them from passing that cost onto a consumer. Oh, you fined me for lying about emissions, eh? Well, how about you pay an extra 10 grand for my car? Right. Well, and, and so I look at it, it's like, okay, why don't we as uh, like the government hold Toyota accountable that anyone who wants to return a Toyota because they feel they bought it under false pretenses, you have to refund them the value that they bought it, not the value of the car now, yeah. the value they bought Full it refund, for. Yeah. You, you have to, uh, you're limited in what you can sell. You have to prove to not only uh, the, the um, kind of the market, but the government as well, that the, all these issues are no longer gonna take place. You're not allowed to advertise on our spaces anymore. We are gonna crack down and limit your market share. <laughs> that, that only punishes the media though. That means we're gonna yeah. lose our jobs if Toyota can't advertise. No, 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 you, you can, uh, every other auto manufacturer, you punish Toyota specifically for the fact that they have lied for, in, uh, as uh, some of the, the reports indicate, decades on trying to sell these cars. And, and that's where I, I kind of start, because yes, these auto manufacturers, oh, they're too big to fail. Like, you know, we, we've had these conversations time and time again, they bring in jobs, things like that. But it's like, there needs to be some accountability. And I, I'm fully in favor of basically blocking them from part or most of our market if they are going to lie about the, oh, the quality of you're products. talking about import restrictions i i yeah everything nothing's off the table in, in my view about this day the one concern i have is the number of toyota plants that actually exist in canada like that could cause a massive ripple effect I, i'm not by the way i'm not ripping your idea here like they should be held accountable for yeah. lying to people openly allegedly uh, lying to people openly uh but i do worry that you know there there are toyota plants all over the country like that 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 could cause another massive ripple effect and again maybe that's where if there's fines or punishments that money goes directly to those employees not into government coffers. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, that, that's a, a possibility. Like, the problem is, and, and as uh, uh, Charles Deladesma pointed out in the report, this is, they are the, the, the best-selling auto manufacturer in the world yeah. currently. Like, yeah. you know, you, you can't be above the law. If you're, you're purposely misleading people, there has to be serious consequences. And even, even though Volkswagen came out, with, uh, like, have had to pay $33 billion for it, it I still think it's like they, they got off relatively easy, all things considered, because they are still manufacturing cars at a high rate. They're still, you know, importing yeah. and, and, and have their market share within within our country. And it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, well, we moved on. You know, we're, yeah. we're just going to hope that that's no, no longer taking place. Ramya, you mentioned trust here and the notion of a company violating your trust. In our cases, uh, automakers might not so much directly apply, but how much does does your trust get rattled if you find out a company knowingly lied to you about their product? I think individually, yeah, our trust gets rattled. And, you know, we like, for example, my mom, who's bought Toyotas for as long as I can remember, it's it's just like this is a personal effect. Right. Uh, however, I and I was going to ask the same question back to you and Alex, how many people or how much of the population do you think shares this sentiment of like, let's cut Toyota cold turkey you know let's boycott on all well, these levels let's not rums maybe we should leave toyota out of this though and think mm -hmm. about the broader concept of being lied to by a company yeah and that's fair i mean every time we hear about something similar to this where a company has you know outright uh lied about something or you know has made us believe one thing when they clearly uh, do not support that um i think that it does you know rattle us as you said but the question really or the the problem the challenge is do we do anything about it do we feel like we have the power to do anything about it and who do we turn to for the representation of like hey this company's done this we feel like this and somebody's gotta uh make sure they take accountability as you said alex alex your thoughts on trust and the long-lasting violations of trust i hold a grudge yeah. i will tell you this i can hold a grudge for a long time well, I, I think my, my previous answer should indicate how I feel about when, when a company lies to you. I 100% I agree. Like, if you violate my trust, and it's not just a, a violation or it's like, oh, you kind of, we, we slightly misled, uh, or there was this uh, kind of factor we didn't quite report. Like, in the context within, like, something like this, where this is decades long, you are making a profit by, uh, like, purposely misleading people. That is yeah. where it's like, no, there's there's no coming back. Like once that has happened, once you have been found in violation of it, no, game over. You 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 don't get a chance to ever win my trust back in, in this regard because it is so insidious uh, to think because it's like you're, you're trying to prey on people's kind of wishes. Oh, they want to do better. Oh, this is more, you know, energy efficient or this is better. I'm making the right choice. Like this isn't, oh, this, this computer is, uh, you know, super fast. It's like, no, th this is something about the environment. And then that has a much more emotional side of it uh, uh, and a much more emotional decision and connection for me than something like, oh, this computer runs like 3% faster. Or yeah, 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 yeah. Like, oh, we slowed down your iPhone with a software yeah. update. Like, oh, I'm a little ticked at you for this. Whereas, yeah. Ramya, maybe circling back to you here, and again, maybe leaving Toyota out of this, but imagine some company uh, forwardly put out talking about, oh, we serve people with disabilities left, right, and center, and we do yada, we do X, Y, and mm -hmm. Z for 
for people with disabilities, and then it turns out they have a horrible track record on disability and accessibility issues. Like, yeah, like my trust to be rattled forever because yeah. there's degrees of importance, right? Like the speed of my iPhone and whether or not your company is actually about disability inclusion, like are fundamentally different things. Yeah, and that's a very fair statement, Dave. And we can take personal, uh, you know, affront to this. But I also wonder, like, do we set the precedent of saying, you know what, these companies do need to be held accountable or let's uh, move away from this or let's make a stink about this? You know, I wonder how many of us actually put together the the protest against when we do feel that our trust has been broken in these ways. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about Toyota because uh, I don't buy a car, uh, so uh, so we're, I'm, all, I'm I'm all good. I'm all good on that front, but uh, but I can fight battles elsewhere. Uh, Let's do one last car question here on the way out, though. Uh, our experience is people who do not drive but occasionally get driven around by family, friends, etc. Let's use the uh, Uber example. Alex, front seat or back seat when you're in an Uber? Oh, 100% the back seat. I don't want to be in the front seat next to someone I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I it, There's no rationale really for it. It's just it's a psychological uh, kind of uh, block for me that I, I much rather be in that, like, it, it has to be in the back seat. It has to be in the passenger side back seat. Same thing with, like, a cab or, or any, like, vehicle that I'm getting into. Like, I want to be on the passenger side in the back seat. I can still make eye contact with them. Because even if I'm, like, behind the driver and it's, like, there's no one else in the car, I feel weird for the driver, yeah, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, this is this can't be comfortable for you, let alone it's not really all that I'm comfortable for me. Yeah, Ramya, yeah. when I used to live in Ottawa, I used to sit in the front seat. But since I moved to this yeah, heck, yeah. since I moved to this heck hole, this this horrible city, always the back seat, and always in the same exact spot as Alex yep. and you. Same, same. I've I've gotten to Uber shares where I was the last one in, and all the seats were packed, and I've had to sit shotgun. I was so so uncomfortable. Like, oh, I don't know. Oh. If it's a packed car, I'm happy as a wider-bodied gentleman to uh, happily mm -hmm. sit in the front seat. Shotgun. Oh yeah, oh okay. yeah, oh as as yeah. a wide as a wide-bodied fellow, don't want to be yeah. squeezing into the in the middle of the back seat. Uh, Ramya, uh, Alex, thank you for this, but don't go too far. You're part of the news quiz. Ramya, what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today at 2 p.m. Eastern time? Well, we're talking protein with nutritionist mm. Julia Caranches, and she's talking specifically about adding vegan and vegetarian options into oh. your, uh, like, sources of protein into your daily intake, right? Uh, also, we're speaking with actor, producer, comedian Nick Novicki about the Easter Seals Disability Film Challenge. Uh, I know you guys either have had or are talking, going to have Talking to him later this week. There you go. Perfect. Uh, so we'll, we'll both cover uh, Easter Seals. And we have our monthly book club today because, of course, it's the last Tuesday of the month. And the book we're reviewing is called The Emperor of the North, Sir George Simpson and the Remarkable Story of the Hudson's, da Hudson's Bay Company by James Raffan. It was hey. a very, very long book, Dave. Okay. All right. So that means it could be a very long segment. A long book means long <laughs> segment. Uh, Ramya, thank you. <laughs> Ramya, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave, you too. That's Ramya Amuth, and you can find Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Coming up after the break, it's the weekly news quiz. Alicia Yardley, Karen McGee, and Alex Smythe will battle it out. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
It's a Tuesday edition of the weekly news quiz on Now with Dave Brown. Super fired up to welcome into the show the contestants. You've heard from them all morning long. It's Alex Smythe in Burlington, Ontario. Hello, Alex. Hello again, Dave. And from the banks of the St. Lawrence River in Morrisburg, Ontario, it's Karen McGee. Hello, Karen. Good morning. And from parts unknown, somewhere in the GTA, it's Alicia Yardley. Hello, Alicia. Hello, Midtown Toronto there, over there, here. <laughs> there are lots of unknown parts of the GTA. It is very sprawly, dead zones, <laughs> wherever you can find them. Okay, let's uh, get to the rules of the game in case it's your first time. There are three rounds of questions with three questions per round. Each question comes with three multiple choice options. If you answer the question without hearing the options, you get two points. If you need the options and get it right, you get one. If you get it wrong, your opponents get the opportunity to steal. The order of contestants and the questions were all drawn up by producer Paul Daniel and word to the wise. These questions are really tough. I was going over them yesterday and I had to decide whether or not I was going to edit them or leave you guys hanging on the branch this morning. And I decided we're going to make you guys work for it today. The order is Alex, Alicia, and Karen, starting with international news. Alex, Indian Prime Minister Nahindra Modi inaugurated a new Hindu temple in the city of Ayodhya, built on a site believed to be the birthplace of a deity. Which deity is it? Uh, I'll get the options, Dave. Is it Rama, Lakshama, or Vishnu? I'm going to go with Vishnu. That is incorrect. Alicia, a chance for a steal. Rama or Lakshama? I want to say Rama. That is correct. The 16th century, Bobby Mosque was previously on the site before it was demolished in 1992 by an angry mob. So Alicia's on the board and gets the opportunity for question number two. An aspiring U.S. presidential candidate has formed a new party called the We the People Party. Which candidate was it? Uh, Can I get the options, please? Is it Cornell West, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., or Henry Louis Gates? I'm going to say Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That is correct. Leisha's on the board with two points now. The new political party requires 75,000 registered voters to qualify for Kennedy to appear on California's primary ballot. So Alicia's got two points here, up and early. Karen McGee, you get question number three of round number one. An African country has initiated the world's first routine malaria vaccine program for children. Which one? I'll take the choices. There's a lot of African countries that I don't know. <laughs> but that's a very fair observation. Uganda, Cameroon, or South Africa? I'm going to say Uganda. That is incorrect. Alex, a chance for a steal. Cameroon or South Africa? I, I was going to go with my gut, and uh, my gut said South Africa. And Alicia sweeps it out with uh, three (laughs) points in the first round with the default points. Over 200 million people are diagnosed with malaria annually. So after round number one, keeping scores easy, Alicia's way out in front of 
all y'all. In the second round, all the questions will be related to Canada. And Alicia gets a real opportunity here to uh, jump ahead on this one. Alicia, a provincial legislature is planning to remove a painting after allegations that the work is fake. So a provincial legislature is planning to remove a painting on display after allegations the work was a fake. Which province is it? I will need the options, please. Is it BC, Manitoba, or Ontario? I'm going to go with my gut and say Manitoba. That is incorrect. Karen, is it BC or Ontario? I'm going to say Ontario because I think it's Group of Seven related. That is correct, but it's not Group of Seven related. Oh, it's not the Group related, of Seven one. But you, okay. are, you are correct. You are correct. We had that Group of Seven Ooh. question on in the fall, and it was explained to me very poorly uh, before, afterwards, and during. Uh, the painting titled Salmon Life Giving Spawn is by the First Nations artist Norval Morisot. The removal is part of an ongoing probe by the OPP related to hundreds of fraudulent artworks using Morisot's name. So there you go. But uh, Karen is now officially on the board, chasing down Alicia with question number two of round number two. Karen, someone was booed by audience members at a political panel presentation in Alberta last week. Who was it? I'll take the options, please. Is it Premier Danielle Smith? Is it Conrad Black? Or is it Jordan Peterson? Ugh, Conrad Black. That is correct. One point for Karen oh. McGee. During a panel presentation, Black stood up for federal finance minister Christian Freeland after Tucker Carlson called her a fascist. Black said while he believes Ms. Freeland is politically misguided, she is, quote, a very nice lady. And uh, that, that'll get you booed. That'll get you booed at a Canadian political conference now. Well, Karen's, Karen's on the move here, closing the gap now. Only one point behind Alicia. We'll see if Karen can actually sweep the whole second round. Alex, Canadians, Canadian special forces pulled out of an African nation after its military leaders announced greater cooperation with Russia. What country is it? Uh, I'll get the options, please, Dave. Is it Nigeria, Niger, or Sudan? Uh, I'm going to go with Sudan. That is incorrect. Alicia, a chance for a steal, Nigeria or Niger? I'm going to say Niger. That is correct. Alicia continues to pull further ahead after round number two. You've got Alicia with four, Karen with two, and I believe Alex is still sitting on the goose egg here. So yeah. uh, big, big round three coming up here with Karen getting the first opportunity on this question. Karen, weeks after she announced that she'd beaten breast cancer, someone famous reveals she was diagnosed with skin cancer. Who is this famous person? Oh, I read this story. I'll take the choices, please. Is it Jane Fonda, Sarah Ferguson, or Martina Navratilova? Sarah Ferguson. All right, one, one, point for, one point for Karen McGee. During reconstructive surgery after a mastectomy, the Duchess of York had some moles removed, and one of them was diagnosed as cancerous. So Karen McGee closing the gap here, but Alex, you get a chance to play big-time spoiler here. Throw things into disarray by answering this question. So there's some new research about a basic blood test that allows researchers to detect a key biomarker for a particular disease with up to 97% accuracy. What disease is it? 
I'll need the options, please, Dave. I feel that way as well. <laughs> Alzheimer's, osteoporosis, or diabetes? I'm gonna go with Alzheimer's. That is correct. The that's why Alex is on the board here, throwing things a little bit into disarray. Alicia, you can lock this whole thing down by getting this question right. A member of this U.S. state Senate has proposed a rule change that, if passed, would allow senators to challenge each other to a duel. We are going way back in time here. What U.S. state is it? I'm going to need those options, please. Yeah, there could be many based on uh, the behavior of some of our friends to the south. <laughs> is it Mississippi, Louisiana, or Missouri? I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say Mississippi. That is incorrect. And Karen, you've got the chance for a steal. Louisiana or Missouri? I'm going to say Louisiana. That is incorrect. Alex oh, Smythe gets the default point. <laughs> Senator Nick Schroer put a motion to adopt a rule change allowing state politicians to settle grievances through physically stating, quote, when the senator's honor is being impugned by another senator to a point that is beyond repair. Good old America. What problem cannot be solved with a duel? So just before we play the tie-breaking question for fun, with that, the winner is... Alicia Yardley, well done by Yay. you. Thank you. Um, it was literally just shots in the dark. So. <laughs> was was Linda, I was I not nice wrong? Fun. Was I was I not wrong? Were these questions tremendously hard? Oh yeah, they were hard. So I'm I feel honored. Um, I want to thank the Academy, obviously. <laughs> I, Karen McGee, you and I are news junkies. Even as I was reading this through yesterday, I think I would have shot maybe one for nine. Maybe one uh, for nine. Yeah, I knew none of them after the first question. Usually I know a couple after the question. <laughs> Nothing. Alex, Nothing. Were, were you, were you no. betrayed by the order on this one at all? A little bit, a little bit. The second round, I was much more confident in myself. It just, it's how the the, the game uh, rolls on. But I also love all the shots in the dark uh, references, you know, because that's really what <laughs> come down here. My my reputation has been tarnished, and I, I think a duel may be a solution for shots in the dark. Uh, <laughs> I think we, I think we, everybody just needs a break from Hamilton. Like, just need a break from Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It could be, it could be the Hamilton effect. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't think we can settle our differences at AMI with duels, even if it was nerf. Guns. I think human resources oh, would have it. No, Nerf Karen, guns. Karen, can't do it. Can't do it. Alicia, Alicia will not approve of this. <laughs> you know what? Why not? YOLO. <laughs> I will be bringing my Nerf gun. Okay, uh, everyone, everyone, protect themselves. I need to be on standby. Yeah, everyone, yeah. protect themselves. So <laughs> next time Karen McGee comes to the Toronto office. All right, let's play the tie-breaking question uh, just for funsies. This one's from the economic world. Now, the way the tiebreaker is done now is closest to the pin. So everybody gets a guess to this raw number. The Dow Jones Industrial Average surpassed an all-time benchmark last week for the first time. What is the number that it surpassed? Alex, give you the first crack at this one. Oh, no. Why, Dave? Why? Karen uh, Rebo. Karen Rebo tells you this every morning in the Canadian Press Business Minute. I, I, I know, but as I'm usually preparing for my weather report at that point. That's true. So, You're locked um, in. 
Oh, geez. I, let's say 700. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. Uh, that's, I, don't uh, that's, I shouldn't laugh at you. I gave, I maybe, I'm oh. going to tip my hand there. Uh, Karen McGee. I was going to say 1,100. Alicia Yardley. I'm going to say 500,000. Okay, you're all so off that I'm taking the point for that one. Oh, <laughs> 38,000 is the number that the Dow oh. passed last week. Uh, now, the, the just for a bit of context here, y'all might remember the uh, economic recession of 2008, like it was only like a giant deal that like our world is still recovering from through a terrible fiscal and monetary policy from central governments and central banks. But you guys may recall that on September the 20th, 9th, 2008, the day the collapse hit its absolute low, the Dow was as low as 10,365. So uh, the wealth... Obviously, we don't remember that. Yeah, so the wealthy <laughs> the wealthy folks have had their money uh, multiplied by four times in the last uh, 15 to 16 years. Uh, have our salaries multiplied by four? Hmm. Hmm. I, I have HR on this call, so I'm not going to comment. No, I, listen, this isn't about, this isn't about HR. Yeah. This is about the robbery that is capitalism. And with that, we're out of time. Uh, Alicia, have a great day. Oh, thanks. I certainly will. (laughs) Karen Karen McGee, you have a nice day as well. Thank you. Alex Smythe, you have a lovely day pondering the prospects of late-stage capitalism. And and I'm going to tell you that don't worry, the show's coming back tomorrow unless the capitalists come to get me through their corruption. As I've told you before, now with Dave Brown, the sole arbiter of the truth in the mass media landscape. There's actually going to be a media conversation tomorrow that I'm really excited to have. There have been a number of closures with major news outlets in the United States, journalists being laid off, the Sports Illustrated brand essentially being imploded. So there's going to be an opportunity to talk about the broader landscape of the media industry with Kevin Shaw. Kevin, of course, is the host of Mind Your Own Business on AMI-tv. He's done a little bit of media criticism here and there on the show, and y'all know I'm excited about that too. So a nice one-on-one with Kevin Shaw talking about the state of modern mass media (sighs) excited to have the conversation not excited necessarily about the news hooks related to the subject matter the show begins at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv, the mighty airwaves that are digital of AMIplus.ca or whenever you decide to download the show on your favorite podcasting platform. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.